Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Christianity and Classical Culture, Episode 3 on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and my guest on this episode is Dr. Thomas Fleming, uh, who, as always, has something great to discuss with us. And today, we're talking about great monotheistic religions, allegedly. And this is something we hear about in our school textbooks. Unfortunately, it was something I saw in my school textbooks, Dr. Fleming, way back when I was in, in school. Uh, this idea that Christianity is simply one of these three great monotheisms of world history alongside Judaism and Islam. And in previous episodes, we've been talking about overlap and affinities between ancient classical cultures, both Greek and Roman, and Christianity. But can we agree that there's one place where there isn't really overlap or it's not possible and that that is in religion? Um, how would you how would you relate what we see in in Christianity uh, with the Greeks and the Romans religious practices, which involved idol worship, blood sacrifice, and and other things that people would consider fairly childish? Yeah, the uh, this is uh, actually a pretty complicated question, and uh, for a philosophy teacher, I would say let's begin to unpack. Um, there are two aspects to the question. One is uh, to lump Christianity with other religions simply on the ground that, that they have one God and therefore uh, somehow these religions are, are related. And sometimes they'll throw in Buddhism, although uh, Buddhism probably doesn't have any God. But, uh, and the other aspect is the insistence that, that uh, Greek paganism, Greco-Roman paganism, is a childish and superstitious set of, uh, of cults that can't be taken seriously. I want to start with the uh, second contention, that is uh, that, that uh, Greek religion, Greek pagan religion, is a, is a childish superstition. Uh, I, once, I was once at a seminar, a Liberty Bond seminar, and a very distinguished scholar who's a friend of mine just opened up and said, uh, nobody could take the religion of the Greeks seriously because it's a childish, naive superstition. And I responded that, well, you know that many very serious minds uh, over the centuries, including the 19th and 20th century, have in fact taken it seriously. What, why do they? Most religious traditions, including Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity, exist on, on many levels. You know, there are people who uh, in Europe, you know, virtually like pagans worshiping, you know, saints in springs and, you know, rubbing, rubbing statues, rabbit's foots, not stopping, you know, not stepping on a crack. Uh, you know, all, all sorts of superstitious practices are, at, are tolerable within a rich tradition, which may also include uh, very high morality. And, uh, and a very deep and serious uh, theology. The same thing can be said of ancient paganism. And by the way, even the word paganism is a little unfair because paganism means, a first of all, like it's a, all isms are ideologies. And there is no ism in ancient, uh, ancient pre-Christian religion. It's a, it's a set of practices and beliefs. Not a, not a kind of philosophical commitment. It, pagan, the, the word pagan means living in the country because it was in a rural district 
our pagan superstitions uh, survive. So when we call some something pagan, we're really adopting uh, Christian language to condemn it as crude and primitive. Okay, if you read Homer, read the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's full of very human gods and goddesses who they have love affairs, they have they carry on wars, they come into uh, they they come into human life uh, doing the same thing. They take human lovers, they they kill people. They it's sort of like a soap opera. So well, you're kind uh, of making you, the case. You're kind of making the case for the opposition, Doctor Fleming. Yes, exactly, exactly, but only partly. Because even the earliest works of Greek literature, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the gods have a moral code for themselves and one they expect us to live up to. Achilles, for example, says he hates to lie like the gates of hell. The gods honor the brave. They punish cowards. They, they, there, there is a moral sense that they support. There, a friend of mine who's dead. Now, he was Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford, Sir Hugh Lloyd-Jones, wrote a very fine set of essays, which I, uh, there, there were lectures given at Berkeley called The Justice of Zeus. And Sir Hugh argued that from the earliest record, that is from, from the Iliad, and you, you can see the beginnings of a concept of justice attributed to Zeus, who makes it work out in the, uh, in the human world. The... Uh, this is very clear uh, in the Odyssey as we have it. I say as we have it because there are a lot of disputes. Is the Odyssey are these are the are the more sophisticated parts of the Odyssey later editions? Let's let's set that aside because it's in any event those later parts are very early. And in the Odyssey, the basic question is raised on the first couple of pages. I mean, Athena asks her father Zeus, "How is it we gods allow the best of men, Odysseus?" who is reverent and pious and brave, how is it we allow him to suffer? I mean, it's the, it's the, oldest, it's the oldest, deepest moral question. Why do the good suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? It's the question asked by the book of Job. And in the course of the Odyssey, it's made very clear that Zeus is, although not all-powerful, he's, he's not the Christian God or the Jewish God. Zeus has many rivals, and there are many constraints he has to work under, but he makes things come out in the end okay. But of course, this even involves Odysseus having to go home as a penniless beggar in rags, despised, rejected, abused by the people who are eating his wife out of house at home and trying to force her to marry them. It's a very, uh, it's a very beautiful ending. It's one of the most beautiful endings in any work of literature when Odysseus throws off the rags and <laughs> kills all the suitors. It's perhaps not a Christian ending, but uh, <laughs> I thought it's, it's very it's very um, typical of you, Doctor Fleming, to describe as beautiful an ending in which a bunch of men are massacred. Well, they're evil men; <laughs> they they deserve to get it. But you know, uh, I'm not the first Christian who observed as a teacher that you know the idea of the 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 hero as a suffering servant who uh, who is despised and rejected. This, this has so many echoes with the Christian gospel story, it's almost uncanny. Obviously, uh, Odysseus, being a Greek pagan, has to take revenge on his enemies. But you know, even there, it doesn't stop. Because after he's killed them all, now their relatives say, you can't do this. They may have been a bunch of jerks, but they are jerks. And, 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 and only divine intervention. Athena comes and stops war. 
and uh, because the, the killing has to stop. I mean, you see, all right, it's it's primitive, but it's nowhere near so primitive as Beowulf or as any action movie that they put on today. So the, from the from the beginning, uh, from the beginning of Greek literature, the, there is a, a very noble sense of justice and decency and morality, which is uh, taught by uh, the gods and by Zeus and Athena in particular. So what do some of the early church fathers have to say about Greek literature? So apart from, from Dr. Fleming's examination, which we have the benefit of, of 2,000 years of Christian tradition, prior to that time in the early, in the early centuries, what, do we have any commentary from church fathers on this? Absolutely. It's, it's pretty negative. The most famous passages that people usually cite are from St. Augustine's City of God. But it's important, and in which he said that, Greek, that pagan literature, Greek and Roman literature, especially theatrical literature, is immoral, obscene, disgusting, childish. Now, interestingly, uh, he doesn't talk about Greek tragedy, because there you have a problem, because it's not obscene, it's not sex-obsessed, there's nothing represented on the stage that you couldn't let a child see, and, uh, and it's highly moral and intelligent. So he, Augustus has to that aside. But uh, setting aside, if we look at what he says in City of God, we have to remember two things. First of all, he had spent much of his life teaching pagan literature and defending Roman civilization, even as a Christian, but that what he wrote the City of God if, uh, after the sack of Rome in 410 by the Visigoths, and he, uh, the Christians were accused of having so weakened the Roman Empire and alienated uh, the, the gods' affections that that Christians were responsible. So in the whole city of God is written as a long uh, apologia, an explanation that it's not the Christians' fault. The pagans deserve to get this. Uh, that Rome deserved it. It's a, it's it's a fairly I think a fairly dishonest argument from beginning to end. It's a brilliant work of uh, of uh, of of thinking, and it's an essential reading for any any Christian. But his his attack on the uh, on the Greeks is uh, is unfair. It, the the way he ignores Greek tragedy is is interesting because if you read Aeschylus and Sophocles in particular, these are very uh, pious writers. They have a very noble conception of the div of divinity, and they have a noble conception of uh, human, how hu human beings have to have to act responsibly, and if they don't, if they act according to their pride and arrogance, they're, they're struck down. The best parallel are the, uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, I think. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a great deal of similarity, so much so that a, a work like the Achilles Prometheus Bound is, uh, reminds many people of the book of Job. Why does Prometheus have to suffer this way? And why why are the why are the ways of Zeus so inscrutable? Why can't we penetrate the, the mind of this God to understand what he, what he wants of us? Why, why do we all have to suffer? Because it's the Greek main, uh, the, the great piece of wisdom of uh, of Greek tragedy that we that learning human learning and moral advancement comes not from success but from failure and suffering. This is a very hard lesson to teach. For example. Us Americans who who even the gospel of success. 
Well, the gospel of success still sells pretty well these days, Dr. Fleming. <laughs> well, I know you're an advocate. So. <laughs> well, how do you how do you link? Obviously, you're talking about this importance of justice, especially with the story of, of Prometheus. But how do you relate this to a theological conception? Do do the Greeks really have a proper one? You know, away from Zeus and away from this sort of squabbling soap opera. Yeah, it's um. It, here, uh, here is the, the my strong suit. This is this is this is my uh, the, my nuclear weapon in this argument, which, by the way, I've used with classes and students and and in debate. Because if you look at um, at uh, the the at the scriptures of the Old Testament, there are conceptions and understandings, but there's no formal theology. There are a few basic things they believe, but they but it's really the Jews were always falling into various weird heresies, the worship of Moses, practice of human sacrifice, all sorts of very strange things they would pick up from their uh, their uh, non their atheist or rather uh, pagan neighbors. Uh, whereas uh, the Greeks invented rational theology, and without it, uh, the Christian Church could not have defended itself against heresy and against its enemies. The language and methods of Christian theology are borrowed directly from the greatest theologians that the world has ever known, namely Plato and Aristotle. Without the, the Christian theology is nothing if not an endless paraphrase or and set of quibbles on the on concepts developed from uh, from Greek philosophy, from Parmenides and then from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and moral theology to Stoics. So in fact, the greatest the, the great the, the creators of the greatest theology in the human civilization are in fact these Greek pagans. The 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 purpose of uh, the highest philosophy was always to find the ground of being. You know, we see, we look at the world and we see it's full of change and coming to be and passing away, and nothing is stable. But beneath that, the Greeks believe there is a stable order, and whether whether it's based on some natural element like water or fire or earth, or whether it's based on processes, or whether it's based on number, which they which Pythagoras uh, and Plato it was, whatever it is, they are looking for something eternal, unchanging. And divine, and uh, the whole the whole point of a uh, Greek metaphysical speculation is to try to define the nature of God. The, the The most famous work of metaphysics ever written is, of course, Aristotle's Metaphysics. But the word metaphysics there doesn't mean anything. But what it means is, in a catalog of Aristotle's work, there there came the book called The Physics about the natural world, and after that, in the catalog came a book about other things, so they just called it the the after the physics. I mean, it's a meaningless title. It just it locates in the catalog. Many scholars believe that the word Aristotle used to refer to his own works, and there's there's some there's good good reason for this for this book is theology, theologia, because again, what Aristotle was trying to discover was uh, to, to how can we help to. Come closer to define the nature of what God is and what God isn't, and then in his other works, how do we live consistent with that? How do we lead a good life? How do we find human happiness, which Aristotle says you find in 
contemplation of the ultimate goodness. In other words, through prayer and contemplation of God, uh, we, we find the perfection of our existence. Now, the, the influence on Christianity from very early on, I mean, we know St. Paul had read some uh, Greek philosophy and some Greek literature because he quotes it, but by the time you get to Justin Martyr and some of the later thinkers like Origen and, and uh, Athanasius, I mean, you have you witness how they defend Christian orthodoxy, the mainstream of Christian thought, from eccentricities and heresies, but their tools are the tools they have borrowed 100% from, uh, from the Greeks. Even Augustine, even St. Augustine, for all his criticism of the Greeks, he can't help blurting out, as, he, as he's quoting Plato and Plotinus, surely it was the Holy Spirit that moved them to write these things, because these are supernatural truths that cannot be simply picked up by or exercise of rational intellect. So even uh, Augustine uh, uh, knew and acknowledged the incredible importance of Greek philosophy. Now, Dr. Fleming, do you find that when you, you make this nuclear argument or you make this rather forceful argument to, to Christians that they somewhat take umbrage at this? Yeah, they, they well, you know, my my fundamentalist and evangelical friends uh, uh, become angry. I, I remember I used to know uh, uh, a Calvinist named John Lofton. He was a fairly uh, popular journal, wing uh, journalist in uh, in Washington. Worked for the Washington Times. Had been editor of a number of conservative magazines. And Lofton would uh, start screaming, "You you 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 believe in Aristotle more than you believe in Jesus Christ." And uh, and, and you know, and of course, if you quoted Thomas Aquinas to him, who always refers to Aristotle as the philosopher, doesn't, doesn't mention him by name, he's simply the philosopher. Um, well, that didn't cut any ice with, <laughs> with, uh, with, uh, with John Watson, because they want to believe that Christianity is a funny little cult, like the Essene Jews at Qumran, cut off from all the civilization that preceded it, and, and that it somehow, if you just uh, read the Bible in your hotel room, and uh, that nothing else matters. Well, unfortunately, that is not what our Lord told us. I mean, it's not what the early Christians did. They're, the early Christians are very, very firm on this, that we, we are good neighbors, we are patriotic citizens, we fulfill our everyday duties, we don't wear clothes, we, you know, we're not part of a cult. We're part of a, we're part of a commonwealth, and we want to convert our neighbors to a religion and, and to a set of practices and beliefs that will make us all capable of living as if we were great philosophers. This is the argument with Justin Martyr. He writes a letter to, to uh, Antonius Pius and Marcus Aurelius, and he says, you know, young, young, young emperor Marcus, you know, we know you're interested in the philosophy, but our religion lets every Christian lead the kind of sublime moral life that you think only philosophers can lead. So that, that, that this, was, this was the selling point of Christianity is that while most philosophers don't succeed in living up to their principles, even an ordinary Christian farmer or shopkeeper can lead a morally sublime life. So um, I think it's 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 a, it's it's a, this is a good time in the history of the world for us as Christians to understand that there are that the Holy Spirit 
And uh, in fact, the second person of the Trinity, who is responsible for or the order of creation and has been there from before the creation of man and has been accessible in all places at all times to people of goodwill who search for the truth, that therefore a lot of truth has been discovered in pre-Christian cultures and, and we need to preserve that. Well, and also too, Dr. Fleming, it, it, kind, it, it makes the incarnation somewhat arbitrary, doesn't it? If you don't accept that our Lord chose a particular time for his incarnation, it, situated within an empire that had taken over such a large part of the world, which would then enable Christianity to spread in, in a much, uh, much easier way, albeit with a, a lot of early conflict, that that this vocabulary was put there in order to be put to good use. So it wasn't as if the Greeks just kept it in a warehouse somewhere and it was never going to be used. That Christianity was able to take it and, and show the, the true light, which the Greeks only had a sense of, but they, they weren't, they weren't uh, a witness to the incarnation, so they couldn't see the fulfillment of it. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. You know, the, 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 first of all, the Roman Empire, with its, with its roads and defense structure, allowed for the quick, uh, the quick transmission of Christianity. Roman law gave early Christianity a sense, you know, a, a, a Christian marriage, for example, is much more based on Roman marriage, than it, which, was, uh, which was monogamous, than it was based on uh, Jewish marriage, which allowed uh, a man to have many wives. But also, uh, the world was being prepared. One of the things I have looked at, and I'd like to do a broadcast on sometime, is when Imagine, uh, imagine St. Paul or, or St. Barnabas or, or one of their disciples going around to a bunch of pagans and saying, we're preaching you salvation, we're promising you salvation. Well, what did a pagan think? Well, we actually know what they thought because we have literature of the time and a long tradition in which the Greeks and Romans were seeking, first of all, for safety and protection in their material life, which, which is salvation, but also that they wanted some, they had some sense that they could have this sense of integrity and wholeness throughout eternity if they led morally virtuous and upright lives. And this is one of the things which philosophers, Stoic and Epicurean and Platonist philosophers, were telling their followers. And so if you went to Athens, as St. Paul did, and start preaching about the unknown God and telling him about salvation, they might not agree with you, but they were prepared to listen. And then if you started telling them, you know, uh, God isn't just this angry being at the other end of the universe, which is, say, what Islam teaches and has been teaching for 1,300, 1,400 years. And God is not simply this remote creator of the universe, as he is more or less in Judaism, but that God, as, 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 uh, as we've been told, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that man might have, you know, eternal life. Well, a Greek would scratch his head. He said, oh, you mean that like Zeus sending Hercules down to Earth, and Hercules puts all these demons and monsters and helps to bring civilization out of chaos, and then he dies a terrible, tragic death, but gods take him up to heaven and accept him as gods. I'm, I'm beginning to understand that. And then the story of Orpheus, who also becomes divine, and, and there's a whole cult around Orpheus. Because he he, he promised uh, he promised salvation and immortality, and, and then you know the, the Greeks would say you know 
Our poet Pindar tells us that one is the race of gods and men, so that actually they they were prepared to understand the incarnation in a way that Jews were not prepared. And, And our Lord says, you know, I am the scandalon, the stumbling block. Jews. And he didn't mean simply that, gee, some of my teachings are pretty hard for them. He meant the claim that God could appear in human form was disgusting to the Jews of his time. They were not prepared to hear this, and they were very angry, and they had him killed as a result. Whereas for the Greeks, this this isn't that difficult a question, and this makes it, it helps us to understand a little bit why Christianity spread much more rapidly among among the Greeks and Romans than it did among the Jews. Well, and you mentioned Marcus Aurelius, Dr. Fleming, and there are parts of the meditations that if you took out and isolated, and I told you this was one of the writings of the Desert Fathers, you would believe me, because they're so uh, focused on, on self-denial and self-abnegation. And I, I often think of Marcus scribbling in his journal somewhere on some Germanic battlefield, scribbling some of the same ideas and thoughts that one of the desert fathers were, you know, out in the desert, that it's not simply analogous, as you were talking about with the idea of Hercules, but in some ways, it's running directly parallel, even in the same time period. And so we can't just say that the Greeks uh, and the Romans were uh, preparation or use the vocabulary. In some ways, they thought the same thoughts. Yes. Exactly. And, you know, uh, reading a little before Marcus, Seneca is an exact content. Seneca the Younger, uh, who was a, a playwright and uh, philosophical writer, he is writing at exactly the same time as St. Paul. And, in fact, his half-brother was, uh, as a governor, actually heard Paul's case before him. And it's conceivable, like more than conceivable, that uh, that Seneca had heard from his brother about this strange new religion and his cult. But Seneca was a was a Stoic, and when you if you read through uh, his philosophical works, his works on moral philosophy, you think you're hearing early Christian writing over and over and over. One of the what tricks I did uh, for a summer school class about two years ago. I read a letter that uh, the anti-Christian Platonist Porphyry wrote to his wife when he was having to leave her for uh, on some journey of business, and uh, it's a letter of how to how to live. And I and uh, in his absence, and she was also a student of philosophy. Porphyry was the was the great student of Plotinus, the Platonist. He wrote a, a very serious critique of Christianity. Very and and the early church had it because it's, it's in fact an extremely scholarly and what we know of it is, is scholarly and effective. I mean, he, he got some of the dating problems right and uh, some of the problems of the Old Testament. There's some, some nonsense that's, that, uh, that Christians want to believe about that. But anyway, Porphyry's letter, I read to a class and, they, and I said, who, who, when was this written and who wrote it? And they thought it was written by some Christian between 400 and, you know, 900 AD or whatever. And it, it uses the language of salvation. It uses the language of, of prayer and meditation. And uh, it's clear that although he he thought that uh, Christianity was a uh, false religion, he, he, uh, he respected, uh, he actually respected Christ in his teachings. 
point is that there was this conversion in antiquity in the years leading up to the incarnation so that the world had been prepared. The people were full of doubt, anxiety. They questioned the traditional superstitions of their religion. They were unable to live a philosophical life. But there was this yearning, this, this great desire for a, for a life of wholeness and perfection. And when Christianity came along, it uh, amazing progress it made in, say, 250 years. Uh, it's funny to think of the works that I've read since I've known you, Dr. Fleming, because sometimes I hear your voice reading what Seneca is writing to me. Uh, and there's one um, in particular, I remember Seneca was lamenting the Saturnalia. He was sort of saying, you know, everyone in Rome these days, you have to get dressed up all the time for all these stupid parties. And I thought, this is Dr. Yes. Fleming writing this. Um, <laughs> would you would you permit me for a moment to to take a slight digression uh, to relate to another podcast we did this month on on Rome. One of the buildings we didn't talk about in that podcast, I think, has a relevance to the discussion we have right now, which is the Pantheon. And I have to say, Dr. Fleming, I'm always a little bit bemused about what to do with muscular saints uh, that look like um, gods worked over. Um, and I think this relates to this conversation of what do Christians do with the philosophical vocabulary of the Greeks or the Romans played out in architecture? Uh, what do what do Christians do with the architectural vocabulary of the Romans and the Greeks? And and how do you feel that the early Christians were successful or not successful in adapting the Pantheon? Well, the, you know the story of the Pantheon is interesting. It was first uh, it was first constructed by Marcus Agrippa, who was uh, Augustus' strong right arm. That was it was constructed more or less as a conventional shaped temple, and it uh, it uh, was struck by lightning. I think and it, it suffered a lot of damage, and so Hadrian uh, rebuilt it. Although he kept the inscription or renewed the inscription, which was built by uh, Marcus Agrippa, which is the first thing you see when you you walk up there. And of course, it was an engineering masterpiece. The dome was something which probably was imported from the east. Uh, but it is uh, it was would have been unthinkable 200 years earlier to have constructed such such a such a dome, and uh, you know there's quarrels to gee did the did the Greeks really did the Romans really the Romans didn't worship all the gods in any one particular ceremony and so why is it called the Pantheon that is the Church of all gods, but um, it clearly uh, was related to the. Uh, the imperial cult and to the favored gods of the empire, Jupiter and uh, and Minerva and uh, and uh, the wife of Jupiter. But um, in the uh, after the shortly after the death of uh, Gregory the Great, a usurper in Constantinople, uh, you know, had murdered the emperor who had been uh, a friend of uh, Gregory the Great, and and. There Lot of a back and forth about who who is going to do what, and the Pope got permission to now own Pantheon, and so he took the he over the Pantheon, but it was felt to be inhabited by demons and had to be cleared out because of its pagan associations. Christians rarely, well, but it wasn't the norm to take over a Greek temple. They did it, for example, in uh, Syracuse. The, uh, the the 
the big church in uh, in Syracuse was a was a uh, a temple of uh, Athena, and there are church. There's a church in uh, in uh, Agrigento, which is called the Temple of Concord. It was always preserved as a church and had to be again had to be purged of of some demons who lived there. So to do this, they took uh, they went and they dug up bones from. Uh, uh, Christian cemeteries, bones of the saints, and put them under the church, and so it became known as the Church of Saint Mary upon the Martyrs because it had been cleansed by putting putting these uh, these uh, bones under there. It's, it is an interesting fact that that most of the best preserved ancient temples were temples converted into churches, and this is because if you the, the, these these temples were not destroyed. By angry Christians, but if you you a building sit around untenanted and untenanted and uh, and untended for centuries in an earthquake zone, <laughs> things don't last very long. Whereas if you build walls into it and treat it like a Christian church and give it routine maintenance, then things like the Parthenon, which was only you know blown up in a war between the uh, the Venetians and the Turks, the places like the on the, the Pantheon, uh, uh, the church in the church on uh, in Syracuse. All of these churches were these these temples were preserved by being turned into churches. And there's a there's a there's a really important sense in which we talk about on this on this, this series of broadcasts, but also when we were talking about Rome. There's a strong sense in which the best elements of the of ancient pagan Greece and Rome are preserved by the church. That is, the church is not just an extension of ancient Judaism. The church is, is the preservation of three great ancient civilizations. Yes, I'm, I, I'm reminded too, There's a, I think there's a temple or church like that in Split in Croatia as well, which I think had it not been uh, taken over by Christianity would, would be lost. There's lots of other ruins in that city that is the same way. How do you get yes, us, however, Dr. Fleming, from a pantheon and a polytheistic Greek and Roman understanding to monotheistic Christianity? That that seems like a pretty big leap. <laughs> well, there are there are two aspects to this problem. One is uh, on the on the Greek side. You know, the philosophers were basically not polytheists. Almost all of them believed that there was one great overarching divine force in the universe, which they refer to as the God. The God wants this, or the God wants... They had no notion of him as a person, but it was a, it was an abstraction, which, uh, and in fact, uh, sort of goes back to Parmenides, who said that all reality was an unmoving, unchanging, undifferentiated uh, whole being, like a sphere, that had that had always existed, and, and uh, there was nothing before it, and uh, and this and this never changed. And obviously, what Parmenides was coming close to is a Christian theological understanding of the divine nature. I mean, I've had I had a Baptist friend who said, "Well, what do you mean God gets mad all the time?" And I said, "Really? Just just try to try to imagine the Creator of the universe being being angry in a conventional, having moods." Oh, this, you know, this is this is not going to be a good day for humanity. Uh, God got on the wrong side of the bed, and it's going to be <laughs> it's flood time. Uh, 
No, I mean, the, the, for, fortunately, Greek, Greek philosophy allows us to eliminate this kind of very primitive thinking. But um, so the, the, essentially, the, the, the educated Greeks, believe, they may have believed in lesser gods as forces in the world in the same way we have angels, angels and, uh, and saints. But they thought that there was one great god who uh, they rarely name. Uh, Cleanthes has a hymn to Zeus in, in which uh, he actually gives this god the name Zeus. More likely, they just call it God. So the, 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 tendency, the tendency of Greek philosophical thought was always toward uh, a monotheism, which could be tempered by a recognition that there are lesser gods. For example, Plotinus, the great disciple of Plato, Plotinus believed that the ultimate source of everything there is, is the one, that is the, the one true, never-changing God, but that it's very hard for us to have access to that one God, and so out of that God there flowed mind, and then out of mind, soul. There's a kind of trinity there, which allows, for example, the human mind can, be, can, can shares in its nature with the divine which is how we can then understand these spiritual things. To say that this has an impact on, on Christian mystical theology would be to understand it. I mean, this is Christian mystical theology, which is why, uh, why Augustine and so many others have such enormous uh, respect for uh, Plotinus, who is very much worth reading uh, today. And, or, you know, Dionysius the Areopagite. I mean, that's a very Plotinian uh, Approach to these things, so that 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 the 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 core of Greek serious religious reflection is on the one hand monotheistic, although on the other hand it recognizes that there are lesser supernatural forces which allow for contact between the human and the divine, and this is exactly what Christianity developed, not only through its understanding of angels and saints and martyrs, but through the very Trinity. You know, the, the Trinity is, dis, is disgusting to pure monotheists, because how can God has one, uh, one nature but three persons? Well, as far as a Muslim is concerned, this is polytheism. So the, the, we, our, our beliefs, our theology is actually, is, it finds much more congenial support among Greek and Roman thought than it does among quote, the world's great monotheisms. And this is something that we don't like to talk about today because it sort of ruins uh, uh, ecumenism among all the world's great religions. But this kind of ecumenism, which you see like in, uh, in the 18th century enlightenment, meaning all religions basically teach the same thing, all religions uh, worship the same God, and do all religions worship uh, Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. I once had a Hindu nationalist write me. He was looking for an ally. He was very well funded, so I, I listened. And he said, look, we'll make a deal. We'll acknowledge Christ as the greatest of gods if you just acknowledge that uh, Vishnu and Indra exist as gods. It's very sweet, but um, I'm afraid you don't really understand uh, what this would mean <laughs> for, for a Christian. But... <laughs> Well, beyond so, I I I think your point's well 
taken on both fronts, Dr. Fleming, both the, that the, the idea that the Greeks were universally polytheist isn't fair. You, we've talked about Marcus Aurelius a couple times on the broadcast today, and I think he always used the phrase, the God within you or the divinity within you when he was talking about uh, his notion of God. And also that this is not a comfortable, quote unquote, conception for Jews conceive of God, not even necessarily as God the Father in that phrasing, but, but God, I am God. And Mohammed's God, which is is Allah. So the Christianity has on its uh, on both uh, flanks um, points to make. Now, part of this mix as well for the pagans was this idea of the emperor, if not as a god, as a demigod. How do we contextualize this within within Christians' understanding? This is uh, obviously early Christians had a real with uh, it was it was bad enough uh, to have uh, to have Jupiter or Apollo or uh, Minerva uh, to have cults or, or the Egyptian Isis, but to have this uh, this human being, often not a very good human being like Nero or Caligula, to have them treated as a, as a god or demigod was a, was a good deal offensive. But um, and and generations since have sort of confused what was going on, starting in the in the Hellenistic world, but even before, you know, the Greeks had this notion of the hero, the heros. The hero is a, a person of who has divine support and who accomplishes great beneficial things for his people. When the hero die, uh, dies. He retains power uh, over the spot where he is buried. Uh, Sophocles' great play, Oedipus at Colonus, is how the, the uh, wretched and miserable elderly Oedipus wants to die and be buried in, uh, in Athens because he, because he knows that in death he will have power to help the people where he's buried. He doesn't want to go back home where he's been mistreated. And this is a very it's a very serious play about because about the nature of uh, about how you would revere how a pagan would revere a saint, because that's essentially how Oedipus is being treated. His, his, he has power after life and his shrine will allow people to benefit if they go and, and visit the shrine. Well, this is sort of how uh, the in the East, East and among uh, in Semitic countries, how they regarded uh, Julius Caesar and then Augustus. And then their successors. There was a lot of talk about them as, and, and of course, they're, they're God because you know the, the the word God is very very broad in uh, in in the Greek and Latin, and it can mean everything from the the God of the universe to to the the, the God of the of the rust that hurts your uh, your door lock. I mean, so it's it's a it can be a very petty little thing. You were supposed to uh, Augustus wouldn't allow the worship of himself or his family in Italy. It was repelled to the Roman point of view, but if they wanted to do that in the East, that was okay. After, de after death, they were regarded as having been supernatural beings chosen by the gods to, to be benefactors to mankind, sort of like Hercules. Um, good emperors didn't take this very seriously. They thought, like Augustus, they thought if this is what people need to help shore up the power of the empire and to make them obey the law, that's fine. 
But beyond that, they didn't they didn't really want anything. Vespasian, who is uh, one of my favorite emperors, Vespasian was always making jokes about uh, the emperor cult, and you know, and if anybody referred to him as sire or your highness or your divinity, he would laugh at them. And on his deathbed, he's lying at uh, uh, he, he knows it's the end. And he's, he fluttered his eyes open, knowing the end had come, but he said, Why? I think I've become a god. For him, it was a, it, was a, it was a joke. Unfortunately, bad emperors who had weak characters didn't take it as a joke. So Nero, uh, Domitian, Commodus, these terrible emperors, all thought of themselves as truly gods. I mean, Caligula would talk about his brother, Judah. And uh, and and these were the people who were most likely to persecute Christianity, because Christians would not worship them. Sensible emperors did not want to be worshipped; they wanted to be respected, and obeyed, and revered, not worshipped, and alive or dead. But it's the bad ones who uh, were 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 corrupted and lived in fear. Now, interestingly, they didn't just persecute Christians. The the bad emperors like Domitian also, and by the way, there seems to be uh, some of the earliest Roman saints in Rome seem to be mem- uh, cousins of Domitian, that is, members of the actual imperial family. But um, they they also persecuted philosophers because philosophers were monotheists who had a, uh, especially the Stoics, had a fused to treat emperors as anything more than human. And the opposition to imperial tyranny uh, in the, through, for uh, over 100 years was led by Stoic philosophers who died martyrs' deaths. They were, they were arrested and uh, often tortured to death because they would not say that a man was a god. So the, again, the, there's a convergence of Christianity and the higher, and the higher philosophical thought of, uh, of the Greco-Roman world. Yeah, to be fair, not everyone bought into this convergence. Like, I mean, earlier on, you, you talked about uh, how St. Augustine looks at things in the city of God. What about Tertullian? Tertullian's famous statement that, uh, you know, what is Athens, question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Because although he was reasonably well-educated uh, philosophically and rhetorically, he uh, rejected, rejected the uh, pagan inheritance of the pagan tradition. Um, and there was, of course, hostility between the Christian world and the official pagan imperial world. Christianity was illegal. It's, it's a real question. Why was Christianity illegal? And uh, there's a pretty good book on Christians and pagans by the Catholic uh, classicist uh, Marta Sordi in uh, Milan. And she's, she's very sensible. And she points out that really, um, because Christ was condemned as a rebel and executed, that meant to follow him was to be in rebellion against the imperial order. But she accepts as true the traditional story that Tiberius, hearing that Jesus told Pilate that uh, his kingdom was not of this earth uh, world, he he thought, well, this this sounds pretty good, because most of the Jews in the Middle East, you know, had no respect for the empire. And so he proposed to include uh, Christ as part of the, in the Roman pantheon, that is, as, a, as one of the gods to be worshipped. It's a good thing he did not. That would have really confused things. But if, if the story is true, the story is, is 
actually got some good uh, uh, warrant for it. But the the two the two religious traditions obviously existed in a considerable amount of conflict, and this meant that people always in every generation, Stephen, there's there are people who want to be I'm more conservative than you are, I'm more Christian than you are, I'm more Catholic than the Pope, whatever. People they want to stake their claim on being the most extreme of what it is. So there were Puritan groups within the early church, like the Montanists, and they have to take the extreme view. We can't go to the party celebrating the emperor's birthday because that implies that we, we that we regard the emperor as God. We can't congratulate. We can't thank the emperor's genius, his guardian angel, for preserving him and preserving the Roman Empire. Most Christians, including uh, including almost all the popes of which we know who spoke on these things, said, "Don't be ridiculous." We're not here to undermine the Roman Empire. We're here to convert the, the, the world. And that we can take part in harmless ceremonies as long as, they're, as, long as we are not actually worshiping uh, uh, the emperor. But uh, and, and the same thing happened, you know, over the question of Christians who, uh, in times of persecution, would get somebody to say, uh, would get an official to write a note, you know, sort of like the doctor's note, please excuse Johnny school today, and the, the note would say that so-and-so had taken part in a, uh, in a pagan ceremony and offered sacrifice, even though he hadn't. Well, there were uh, the, the more extreme Christians would say anybody who got such a bogus document had repudiated Christ and could not, no matter what penance he did, could not be readmitted to the church. By the way, uh, the, 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 the one pope after another condemned this, and in fact, these people were, were heretics. And St. Augustine uh, fought against just such a, just such a heresy, and there, but there were several of them. So the extremists in the church, the, the, the pure, sort of the, like the New England Puritans, would have nothing to do with anything uh, pagan or traditionally Greek or traditionally Roman, but this is not the mainstream of church, either in the Greek East or in the Roman West. And, uh, of course, uh, by the time of Constantine, the, the leaders of the church had to learn how to take over the empire and help to run it and manage it and, and continue to Christianize it. And so the, the future really lay with reasonable uh, Christians like Augustine and uh, Athanasius, not with the unreasoning fanatics. Now, Augustine, interestingly, did come up with a crazy idea in his uh, De Doctrina Christiana. He says that uh, maybe we need a completely Christian curriculum to get rid of all these pagan books. Well, so he drew, you know, but there was no Christian, there was no uh, the great literature. There was no Virgil, Homer, no Plato, no Thucydides, no Tacitus. And uh, it was a little bit like John Henry Newman, who once, you know, puzzled over could you have a Catholic English curriculum? Well, what are you going to read? You know, well, he said, well, you know, there are things in Shakespeare that seem Catholic. Dr. Johnson has almost Catholic imagination. I know, but you still have to throw out three-fourths of the best English literature if you're just going to have a, an English Catholic curriculum. We Christians, one of, one of our problems is that we have to live within the world as it has evolved and existed, and we can't run around 
uh, we're not supposed to wear funny costumes and adopt a weird way of life. We're not supposed to show, we're not supposed to become freaks in society. We have to learn how to, as they say, live in the world but not of the world. And because, recognizing that everything in this world, although it was created to be perfect and beautiful, it's often fraught with error and sin and vice. But just because something isn't completely perfect, like a marriage, for example, you don't repudiate a marriage because your wife nags you or is a bad cook. Someday you'll understand what I'm saying. Well, unfortunately, I'm married to a good cook who's not a good but my point is that you can't you don't just reject the good things of this world because there is some, there are problems with it. And that's essentially what Tertullian and Novation and all those people were were doing. They were throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well and I think I think that's important, Dr. Fleming, is is again going back to our original idea of when did the incarnation happen? It happened at a providential time of history and we have to take the good with the bad and and whatever the, the bad of the Roman Empire, we also have to take the, the good of the Roman Empire. So by that same token, as Christians, as much as we would like for us to quote unquote own everything, that's that's not how it works. Christianity came into existence at a particular time in history did not always exist. And it's in part tied to the old Jewish religion as well. So Christians can't claim to own that uh, by themselves. It's, it's, it's a shared patrimony in a way. So by that yes. same, by that same token here, as, as you say, we, we can't, we can't whitewash out everything and, and only, only keep the things that we're completely pleased with. And we, we'd be much more impoverished if we did. That's the word, that, but that's what Muslims do, you know. They say they come to a church and they have to they have to literally whitewash over all the images of the saints and of and of the human form. They have to, and if they're extreme, they have to blow up Buddhist temples. They have to blow up uh, buildings in Palmyra. They have they ha they have to white in in uh, in Kosovo. The Albanian Muslims are dynam dynamite graveyards to wipe out every evidence that Christians have ever been there ever been there. And this is, a, it, within Christianity, there is this puritanical temptation to do it, but a, it is it is, not, it is a temptation that does not arise from incarnation, or, and, which, and, and, and the great principles behind that. And it is a rejection of, uh, uh, in a way, of the whole life of Christ within the world to think that we could somehow purify the world and make it and and eliminate all the obstacles to our own our own way of thinking. Uh, I'd like to close with uh, <clears throat> just one one little reflection, not from but from uh, G.K. Chesterton. In his wonderful book, The Everlasting Man, Chesterton takes up this question of uh, the struggle of, of Rome uh, for the world and uh, the Punic Wars, <clears throat> and he you know he has a a discussion of you know, how childish the Romans were, or, you know, they would, they would worship a doll, you know, little images, and, and uh, but he said, you know, there's a difference between, uh, between re re revering a statue or a doll and sacrificing your own child to it, which is what, you know, the Carthaginians were baby murderers. If you, if you go to Carthaginian uh, sites in Sicily, you'll find graveyards with nothing but little, little kids in them, because, mm. and it's not because there was a measles plague. And uh, Newton says in the chapter, I'll just quote a little bit, 
Carthage fell because she was faithful to her own philosophy and had followed it out to its logical conclusion, her vision of the universe. Moloch had eaten his children. The gods had risen again. The demons had been defeated after all, but they had been defeated by the defeated and almost defeated by the dead. Nobody understands the romance of Rome and why she rose afterwards to a representative leadership that seemed fated and fundamentally natural. Who does not keep in mind the agony of horror and humiliation through which she had continued to testify to the sanity that is the soul of Europe? She came to stand alone in the midst of an empire because she had once stood alone in the midst of a ruin and a waste. After that, all men knew in their hearts that she had been representative of mankind, even when she was rejected by men. So, I mean, Chesterton sees that the Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome were fought for the soul of the Mediterranean world. And when Rome won, a decent, clean, honorable, philosophical paganism won out over a religion that had temple prostitution and the murder of children. And, in, and of course, a, a, a religion whose followers enslaved all their neighbors and engaged in mass so for him, he said, you know, the world had to be purified by this decent paganism of the Greco-Roman style before the incarnation could occur. Now, this is, of course, not a binding theology. It's speculative. It's romance. It's poetry. But there really is, if, if you believe in providence, there really is truth in this, that the, that the Roman order was essential for, for the coming and diffusion of Christianity. Well, I think that's a good place for us to, to close, Dr. Fleming. We don't want to try the, the Christian or pagan patience of our listeners too much longer. And I think we've had, we've had a good discussion today anyway. Um, thanks so much for your time. We look forward to continuing on in this series. And um, thanks for giving us your time today. What a pleasure.